There's a place here at the table Your coats go by the door You can kick your shoes off in that pile on the floor I hope you wore elastic Cause your waistband's gonna get tight Take time's done, we're having a night Hi everybody, I'm Sophie <laughs> And I'm Ari and you're listening to Having a Night, reviving the lost art of the dinner party. Sophie, did you eat anything good out, out in LA this week? I did. It's funny. I was like having a hard time figuring out if there was like a particular meal that I wanted to focus on. I wouldn't exactly say that I've had any true standout meals since I've been here. What I have had are some standout grapefruits. I mean, I could just wax on about the citrus in California for days on end because there's so many different varietals of grapefruit, orange, lemon, et cetera, that we just don't get in New York. And that's okay mm-hmm. that we don't get them. But then when you're out here, you're like, man, these really make life a little sweeter. So there's this so one grapefruit true. called an Oro Blanco, and it's a low acid grapefruit. So I feel like, you know, grapefruits are so, especially when you buy them at the supermarket, they're so hit or miss in that like one can be delicious and the next is so tart that you're like, my stomach lining is eroding away as I'm eating this. Like I'm in pain. Yes. Whereas, so these are, are bred to be really low acid. So it's like, they're much more floral and weirdly they kind of taste like a grape. And I'm always like, is this where the name grapefruit comes from? Oh my. Which I don't <laughs> think so, but like maybe. Wow. Like they have a much more like weirdly grapey flavor to me. Um, Mm, So I've just had a couple of those. So I would say, yeah, the produce out here has me excited, but weirdly because I haven't been out here for a year and a half, like I'm used to trying to keep up with the restaurants out here, even if I'm not here Mm -hmm. and then coming out and being like, Oh, I'm excited to eat here and there. And a lot of stuff is still closed. Like it feels a Mm -hmm. little like I don't quite have my bearings yet, which is fine. So, so that produce is getting me through. Oh, that sounds delightful. I love a good grapefruit. And low acid sounds like the way to go. I I hate when you eat one and it's like immediately you can tell the enamel off of your teeth is like gone. Exactly. (laughs) Exactly. You're like, I might as well just have bitten into a lemon. I mean, I feel like you and I are both more pear than apple Mm -hmm. and I'm more grapefruit than orange. Are you more grapefruit than orange? I don't know. I like both equally. I don't discriminate okay. my citrus. Okay. I love all citrus. I love sour. What well, did you eat this week? I did not have any local citrus, but I did have some local ramps. We had a big ramp haul, which I spoke about either on last week's episode or chip hour, but we made one of my favorite recipes, which is Melissa Clark's splayed chicken with ramps. And I also made a ramp pesto, but I didn't, I did it raw and it's just, it's too much. It's too garlicky. garlicky. It's like you take one one bite and it's like, ouch. Did you add any like parsley or anything like that? No, I should have. I realized because it was all green. The you know, it was bright green all from the um, stems. And then also right. I used all the bulbs. So I must've used at least two bunches of ramps in this tiny, like probably six to eight ounce container. So every spoonful, you're like, how many ramps am I eating? This is not good for my digestion. <laughs> When I left, really before good. I left Harry in New York, I made him like a bunch of stuff so that he could like, you know, have yummy things in the refrigerator. So I made a big ramp pesto and I made hummus and I made chajik. And he was like, this is also sweet. Are you trying to make sure that like 
I can't interact with anyone face to face until yeah. you're back because this is all so garlic. Good going. That is I mean, real smart. Sneaky, sneaky. Keep so the husband. Sneaky. It's like it's like a weird kind of like um, you know, Munchausen's by proxy, but like via <laughs> garlic <laughs> ramps. Exactly via ramps. But yeah, I think the ramp pesto is tricky because every recipe is just going to tell you to do exactly what you did. Mm-hmm. And just basically use the, what's weird though is like the ramps are supposed to be subbed for both the basil and the garlic. It really just tastes like green garlic. It's too much. I would have put some basil in it had I had some. So the Melissa yeah. Clark's recipe for this chicken, the the ramps get cooked and caramelized and they really, really mellow out. So yeah. you can't eat you can eat them like leeks. You could eat multiples, but you've got to cook yeah. the hell out of them. I mean, if somebody isn't trying to make a ramp pesto at home, I would suggest trying them blanched. And I would also suggest using fewer ramps and using like a ton of parsley because like the parsley just kind of, you can't really even distinguish the flavor, but it just cuts some of the ramps a little Ooh, with a little bit of lemon zest, maybe anyway. Yeah. You definitely need the lemon. You definitely need the lemon zest in that pesto. Okay, guys, our guest today, we freaked out when we realized that we were having him on the podcast, like properly we're texting each other being like, wait, wait, for real? Oh my God. No. <laughs> this week, we have Ian Cobble on the show. You might know him. You might be geeking out. If that name rings a bell, he is the star of Psalm, a movie that is very near and dear to our hearts. Um, it's a documentary. And we're not afraid to say he is the star. It may oh, be he is the star. a group he's cast, the star. but he's the star. Yeah. I feel like it, he, like I did rewatch it before our interview, and he's certainly, he, it's, about, it's about his journey. Anyway, it's a fabulous documentary about uh, a group of friends who are all training to take the master sommelier uh, yeah. certification exam, exam. which yeah, is yeah. notoriously hard. And one of the hardest tests you can take. And you, it's like you in have to try in the whole goddamn world. And he is just, these guys are all so knowledgeable and smart. And so, I, I mean, they're so eccentric because their noses, their palates, their, their, um, knowledge of geography, terroir, language. They're just wine nerds in the biggest way. Highly recommend you guys watch it. I think it, I think it's on Netflix or Hulu or something if you haven't already seen it. But part of what's so striking is that it actually is like, I mean, it's almost like a sport, like the way in which these people have to prepare, like it's so all encompassing. It's so unfamiliar to me actually in some ways, like that it's one of them actually was like a baseball player. And, and somehow it's like, it seemed like that training mm-hmm. for him prepared him so well for like the master sommelier exam. It's just really fascinating. And like such a, a world that as superficial drinkers, we think we know a lot about. And then you realize like, oh, we barely scratched the surface. We hardly know anything. It's crazy. Oh, oh yeah. We know nothing, which is why Ian's latest kind of venture. I mean, he has worked in some of the nicest restaurants in the world with some of the the most amazing. He worked for Krug for a while. He was voted uh, best sommelier in the world under 35 at one point, but now he runs Psalm Select, which he kind of created in 2014, which is bringing the Psalm experience into the home. So Psalm Select, it's a website, a fabulous website, which I want to tell you guys, it's very well designed. As soon as I got yeah. on there, I was like, oh, I want to buy everything. So it's sort of supposed to mimic both your neighborhood wine store and 
as if you have a sommelier on demand, right? It's like as if you live with a sommelier who can really hone in on your tastes and on what you want. And they do incredible daily deals, very crazy. Like, I wish I hadn't signed up for their emails because now all I want to do is buy wine, but I'm happy that I signed up because basically it's like Ian himself or one of the other wine directors who are all very, very high level master psalms will do kind of like a deep dive into whatever wine the deal is on that day or whatever cases they're offering. And it's really cool. It's just fantastic. And they they really put an emphasis on finding smaller producers. Mm-hmm. And I was surprised because I kind of thought like, okay, you do the master psalm exam. You're not going to be a person who's like, I'm obsessed with natural wine because you've tasted a million wines, right? right. Like you have your, your palate is too wide to only hone in on one thing, but he's like, for the purposes of not ruining our earth, we're also trying to focus on people who are not just doing biodynamic farming, but who are basically, you know, really, really making sure that, that they're not, you know, just working on gigantic, gigantic plots of land and overturning mm-hmm. the soil and all of that stuff. Mm-hmm. So it's great. He's so wonderful. I was like kind of scared because he's such a master, which by the way, guys, we keep calling it a grand master in the episode. It's not a grand master. It's just a master. Okay, I was like watching too much Queen's Gambit before this interview. I was like, it's a grand master, like in chess. <laughs> um, oh my God. He's so, he exceeded our expectations. Someone who we th- we think of as this thing. Oh. King of Wines. <laughs> he was so down to the earth. King of Wine. Yeah, king he's very down to earth. Um, <laughs> Enjoy, so- everyone. Okay, wow. Here we are with Ian, which this is a very big deal for us. When we got the email that you were interested in coming on, we kind of, I started texting Ari being like, oh my God, oh my God. Yep, you'll never believe it. <laughs> Will you tell us just what you're drinking? Because it looks incredibly beautiful and I'm very jealous. Yeah, so this is uh, my friend Samantha Sheehan. Uh, she makes an incredible vermouth um, out of Napa. It's called Mom and Pop. So this is basically vermouth is an aromatized wine. And so she makes different flavors. You know, this particular one is a pamplemousse, which is grapefruit. And so you basically just pour it over ice with a little bit of um, sparkling water, creates a nice refreshing afternoon beverage. If you're having friends over putting out a, you know, plate of charcuterie with some vermouth on ice is a very, very good way for it. In Spain, it's a very hot topic. If you go to San Sebastian, you're out partying at night, you drink vermouth usually to start the night, maybe with some octopus with romesco, and then you move to gin tonics and uh, some music. Kind of the, I love Spanish food and the whole lifestyle. I I drink more vermouth now, uh, but not all the time, more in like, you know, when it's over 70 degrees Fahrenheit, that's pretty much uh, the the approval from the weather gives me, uh, (laughs) allows me to drink vermouth. Oh, I'm oh, so into it. I'm I I feel like the low kind of part of this low ABV thing that we're that's happening. It's just such a nice way to start start the evening or the afternoon. Just having yeah vermouth with uh, yeah you feel so European and, and sherry too is having this great exactly. moment. Uh, it's it's awesome. I mean I know people of your uh, expertise. You're like having a moment. It's always, it never went out of style, but you know, for, for the rest of us. Can I just ask, because we just jumped off on the vermouth foot, what is the actual difference between, okay. Cause you would never have like just dry vermouth over ice at this hour of the day, right? It's like, you're, it's usually going to be a sweet vermouth. So what is the actual difference between a vermouth 
and a wine. It's aromatized, but does it also have sugar? They basically add like orange peel. Sometimes they'll add sugar depending on the recipe. It's basically aromatized wine that you can throw a lot of different herbs and spices and sugar and alcohol. And you're typically looking at around just under 20%. This one is 17%. I've seen vermouths up to 22%. Um, but if you pour over ice, you know, you're looking at around a 12 to 14% ABV cocktail, which isn't super high, not super low, but it is the perfect way to get through a warm evening. If you're in New York city during the summer or Chicago, which can be quite humid sometimes yeah. having a beverage, uh, this is still kind of wine technically. Um, but it's a great way to get through and then move into a light red, for example. Um, there's many ways to use it. Yeah. And a Negroni. Um, Negroni exactly. <laughs> I mean, that's it. Mic drop. Yeah, exactly. And then you're suddenly you're three sheets to the wind. Um, <laughs> <laughs> Will you start by telling us a little bit about Psalm Select? Yeah. So I passed the master sommelier exam in 2012 and I took a job for Krug Champagne and I was traveling a lot and I kind of just was traveling way too much. I kind of was ready to do something more at home, spend more time with my family. And one of my best friends from college came and said, Ian, there's all these daily offer businesses out there, but they're all discount websites. It's like, hey, here's a hundred dollar Napa cab for $19.99, and you get it in the mail and it's tastes like $19.99. So right. why don't we turn the whole daily offer business, this flash sale on its head? And why don't we just offer the very best wines of the world and take the kind of the table side chat that you get with the sommelier table side when you're at a really nice restaurant and you left that that dinner experience like totally wowed and in terms of your understanding of that wine, the way it goes with the food. We wanted to take that experience that you typically spend a lot of money for at a restaurant and bring it into your daily email to that way you are learning about different wines every day, giving you the option to buy them with free shipping at a certain threshold. And it was a great way for people to experience the world and learn about wine versus you go in your local wine shop and there might be 700 wines on the shelf and you get a case of wine, but you really don't know too much about each one. We have a great way to buy, you know, you can buy one wine today, one wine in two days, and we can build a case for you. We have a build a case program. So there's lots of things that have evolved over time, but the Genesis was basically a daily offer of a special wine, small production. We focus on organic and biodynamically farmed wines um, and highly sustainable products from around the world. You know, and the way you can think about going to a farmer's market and buying a tomato versus going to the store and buying a tomato, you're getting a different product. You're getting a you know, sustainably farmed, small production for, direct from the farm that gives you a different taste and feeling and experience. And I think that's really what Psalm Select wants to do. We've evolved to adding uh, multiple clubs, like a blind tasting six pack, et cetera. And there's different ways of, you know, uh, in, engaging with our sommelier concierge department, which we call private client services, that if you're building a seller, you call us, we'll basically take care of A through Z, even flying in if it's safe to help stock your seller. And, you know, I think that one of the greatest wow. ways to engage with the company is the blind tasting six pack called the blind yes. stick. It's $1.99 a month, six bottles to your door wrapped in paper that basically numbers one through six, allowing you to blind taste like a master sommelier. Um, there's also the explore four, which we just launched uh, about a year and a half ago. That's four wines for $99. So that's another, another club that's very accessible for people who might be more budget conscious. Um, but yeah, Psalm Select is growing in many ways and it's pretty much our passion to share great wines from around the world with people who might be thirsty to learn about different things. 
And like how, because on your, on your website, it's very clear that you guys are focusing on small producers and why are small, why are you viewing small producers as either being more exciting or somehow maybe better one might even say than a larger producer? Well, there's, you know, some of the best wines in the world are large production, Lafitte, Latour, Mouton. They're all, you know, 25,000 to 50,000 cases, but those are exceptions for me. When you have a small producer focused on the land, they get to really tend to each vine. They get to utilize more organic and biodynamic approaches. And really, you know, it's kind of like if you're a mother of 20, you know, it's a little bit more difficult than if you're a mother of three. You know, right. so I would think that uh, not all the kids are going to end up in Harvard, right? Right. So, well, uh, with that being said, I think small producers, you know, they make wines, I find that often have more soul. There's more energy, there's more care, there's less conventional chemicals and herbicides and pesticides often used for small projects and small vineyards because people can actually walk and see each vine every day versus if you're, you know, a person, uh, five or 10 people, you know, overseeing, you know, a thousand acres of vineyard, you know, you're using machines and you're technically using more conventional approaches, which often involve carcinogenic compounds, which I don't think are mm-hmm. ideal for human consumption. Right. Um, and only about 97% of the world's vineyards are farmed organic. So we really do our best to go out of our way to try to find just a ways to support all the people that are really doing the hard work and utilizing nature. Um, for example, instead of using a pesticide spray, you might release ladybugs into the vineyard, which eat the pests that might be causing an issue, for example. But, what? Um, but there's 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 a lot of ways to help create balance in the soil, and for me, there's a lot of organic and biodynamic preparations that you can do to help give the grapes what it needs without using anything that might cause us harm as humans who are consuming those goods. Yeah, totally. Who are some of the small producers that you're super excited about right now? Like what? Jeez, um, or like I mean, more regions as well. Like yeah. Say, you know, in my own backyard, a, a producer called Matthiason, Steve Matthiason, is all about, you know, small vineyards focused on, you know, organic viticulture and really giving you something that's, they're often dry farmed, organically farmed plots, giving you really true, pure expressions of Napa Valley Cabernet Sauvignon, a larger producer from Napa that um, still has that sense of, uh, you know, just purity of small production, even though they're a bigger producer, it's Frog's mm-hmm. Leap. That's one that you can find widely distributed. Um, there's a few producers that we love over in Burgundy. Uh, there's, I mean, there's so many. Grosjean up in the Val d'Aosta, small production imported by Charles Neal. Um, our Pepe, great producer in the northeast of Valtellina. There's thousands of, of great producers that are farming organically. and But the problem is they're, they're coming in in such small production. Some producers we deal with literally make 250 cases a year this Kuniaz Nadir, he's a producer up in Northern Italy. And he basically, he's a school teacher. And on the side, he has a vineyard in the back of his house and he makes wine in his basement. And I, I mean, think <laughs> on a, on a light year, he's making 150 cases a large year. He's like 400, but you know, and we might get 30 or 35 cases of it. And uh, which is a, a significant portion of his, of his stock. But um, being able to share those wines that really have authenticity and a connection to place, Versus just a label that was sourced from 500 different vineyards in California Mm -hmm. that is stocked on your supermarket shelf. Not to disrespect large brands, but Psalm Select is really focused on bringing 
the smaller producers to you. It doesn't mean we don't sell larger brands as well. There's certain producers in Bordeaux that might make 10 or 20,000 cases a year and we might buy it because it's a great value and they're highly sustainable. Um, but it's, uh, it's, it's just a focus of ours and we do our best to try to keep everything in that, in that kind of more sustainable direction. I mean, do you feel like your taste in terms of that has changed a lot since the making of some, you know, my palate has definitely changed a little bit. I definitely started my career, you know, back in 2003. I mean, my first time I really got into wine was the late nineties when I was in college, but I started drinking, you know, liking fruit forward wines. And I think most people do when they're, they're early twenties and the more you grow, the more you taste, the more you crave the taste of the dirt and the place that the wine, you know, came from and grew in because you can make juicy fruity wines pretty much anywhere in the world. A lot of young vines, they don't, they're not tapped in deep into the soil and the older the vines get. And especially if you don't water the vines where it's illegal in France to water the vines. I'm not sure if you knew that. So when it's illegal to water the vines, the vine is driven deep down into the soil to bring any minerals that create more complexity, aromatic complexity, structural, you know, mineral components. Um, and I think that, you know, over time I've gravitated towards the taste of wine, but also understanding the wine story. And I think that's what's unique about mm -hmm. um, Select. We say we don't just sell wine, we tell its story. And we hopefully allow the person that's drinking that wine to connect with that place. And hopefully, you know, looking on, you know, if the offer has a lot of information about it, we advise people cook the recipes that are coming with it. And also, you know, look at Google images and look at the place in Mount Etna, for example. It's a, an erupting volcano in Italy. We might do an offer on it. And we just, we always advise people, you know, learn through your fingertips. You can really utilize your computer to, to travel to these places and you're tasting the local uh, dish, which we might've recommended with the daily offer, drinking the local wine and really having the ability to travel through your taste to a place for me is really important, especially over the last year, what we've all been going through. Right. I mean, music, food, wine, it's pretty much what people have done to pass the time. And the more great wine you have to taste and the more recipes you have to follow. It's, it's a great pastime. That's what I've been doing most of the time. It's like, what are we cooking tonight? And what yeah. are we drinking? It's two o'clock. Let's get started. I'm just kidding. Yeah, right. <laughs> no, but it's true. I mean, so what is the point of blind tasting if you are not like a qualified song? Meaning like I have often gone and done blind tastings. And at this point, I feel like I have enough of a grasp of wine and regions and grapes that I can sort of muddle my way through one. I mean, I'm obviously making most of it up, but if you, if you have really no sense of what you're drinking, what do you think is the point of doing a blind tasting? You know, for me, it's really learning what you like. You're not really drinking the label, you're drinking the wine. So if somebody gives you, let's say they give you a, a dry Riesling from Germany, but you hated quote unquote, you hated Riesling cause it's all sweet, right? Somebody gives you a glass of amazing dry Riesling from the faults, maybe made by Birkeland Wolf, who's one of the best producers. And you're like, wow, this is incredible. You might think it reminds you of Sauvignon Blanc or a dry Chardonnay. You don't know where to put it because most people have about five white grapes in their arsenal. And all of yeah. a sudden you, you find the label. You're like, wow, I really love dry Riesling now. Right. So I think it's a way of learning in reverse. If you're not really a great taster and you don't have the knowledge of the most important 50 grapes and the way they taste like in the Northern Rhone versus the Southern Rhone versus Australia, like each one has a distinct expression of personality based on the soil, the climate, the grape variety and the clones, if it's watered, if it's not like all of these variables contribute to the way wines taste. 
And I think over time, if you really feel like you've understood the world of wine, blind tasting is the next way to kind of test yourself. Oh, do I really understand the way that Merlot tastes from Sonoma County versus the way that uh, Merlot might taste in the right bank of Bo- right bank Bordeaux uh, for uh, areas, for example, Saint Emilion or Fronsac, they taste totally different. How? And when you start tasting in a blind tasting setting, you learn in a different route because you're not actually tasting the label. You're judging the wine based on the color, the sight, the tears, the right. fruits, flowers, herbs, earth, wood, the acid, uh, complexity, tannin, the length on the palate, the type of minerality of its fruit forward or earth forward. There's so many different ways of looking at wine. And I find it fascinating personally, and that's why I've kind of dedicated my life to it. And I think that that's the reason we're talking. It's because you guys are excited about it as well. But it, you know, wine is a, conti- a continuous education and it's a, it's a lifelong journey that I will never know everything. I don't expect to, but it's a lot of fun trying. Is there ever a point or was there, especially before you became a Grandmaster Psalm, where like you're tasting something and, you, and you're like, I don't know what this is, like a moment of doom? I, if I don't know. Test, if you're at a test, there's six wines, there's three whites, there's three reds. You pick the wine up. And at that point, you've totally geeked out for years, right? You're in year seven or eight of geeking out. So you pick up the wine and you smell it. You're hoping to God that you recognize it, right? Right. If you don't, <laughs> you have to, you know, it kind of makes your you know blood pressure grow up a little bit. You're like, okay, you hope that you're really going to recognize the wine because you're a master at that point. But a lot of the wines... For example, Pinot Grigio versus Albarino versus an earthy style of Gruner Velliner, they can have some characteristics which fall in line to each other. So going from there, you have to look at the color. How is the color going to, to change? The Pinot Grigio has a little bit of a bronze hue, right? But Albarino and Gruner look similar. And hopefully over time, you start to break apart the wine into these uh-huh. little quadrants, right? And then eventually you'll find the different fruits, the different floral components, the different earth components. If there's any tannin on the white wine, how much? How is it affecting you? Um, is there any taste memory coming up once you finally taste the wine? It should hopefully, at a certain point, hit your taste memory because that's really when you come down to blind tasting. You do have to describe all the different fruits if they're underripe, they're overripe, the flowers if they're dried, all of these things going on, and those are how you kind of score points. But then at the very end, you have to take all of these pieces of evidence. And it's like clue, like who did it in what room, right? Exactly. And, yeah. <laughs> and and you hopefully and you hopefully will make the right call, um, the right country, the region, the subdistrict, great variety, vintage, et cetera. But it's it's really um an imperfect science and it really comes down to how you've trained your taste memory. So when I say that, it's like if I say, you know, think about a Coldplay song, you could probably both think about it in your mind. But if you've never heard Coldplay before, you have no idea. Same thing mm-hmm. with New Zealand Sauvignon Blanc versus Sancerre, which is Sauvignon Blanc versus Napa Valley Sauvignon Blanc. Each one has a different pitch, different tone, different alcohol, different aromatic complexity. So when you smell, okay, this is Sauvignon Blanc, hopefully your taste memory of drinking Spotswood from Napa Valley or drinking Domaine Vacheron from Sancerre or drinking Saracen from Marlboro in New Zealand there's a unique taste memory that's been imprinted in your brain that hopefully you can actually put in that bucket and make the final conclusion and feel confident about it. And uh, that's kind of, that's the wormhole that my, uh, that I would take you into. Um, But other than that, there's blind tasting should be fun. For example, like I have friends uh, sitting right in my backyard where I'm sitting right now. 
and I'll bring a decanter back and pour them a wine. And hopefully it's delicious for so long. And then second of all, everyone's talking about it. It's like, you know, it's stimulating. It's cerebral. It's, it's like, Hey, it's like you put on a song who, 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 who played this record in the sixties. Right. And if you're a music buff, that's interesting to try to guess the song and the album, right. but right. for the wine geeks, you know, it's alcohol. So it's fun. It's stimulating. People start drinking and imbibing a little bit. And it also happens to be a little bit of a, an exam. It's like a little bit of a trivia. I mean, something that really strikes me, like listening to you talk now, and of course, watching Psalm and speaking to other sommeliers is that there is something incredibly, I don't want to say mathematical because like, that's not the right word, but it is this thing of like this grid where, you know, so hardcore, all of these things, right? It's like, it's not like me sitting there and being like, uh, it smells like cumin. Like, I don't know. It's so, it's so precise. <laughs> Yeah. And like, how much has your experience, you know, over the last, it sounds like, you know, 20 ish years gone between like enjoyment and that sort of mathematical brain side of it. Do you find that like, now that you are a grandmaster Psalm and like really, you know, feel perhaps more established, are you like, Oh, I'm now allowed to enjoy it again, as opposed to being like, fuck my fucking flashcards, man. You know like, what? I'll tell you what, there's, there's points. So master sommelier, just to clarify, it's not a grandmaster but it already just, wrote grandmaster. It's not me. <laughs> oh, sorry. <laughs> but like, we are, it's, it's okay. We are master sommeliers. And, um, in my mind, <laughs> uh, there are points in my career where I just can't wait to stop thinking about the tests because at a certain point, you know, if you want to be a doctor, or if you want to be a lawyer, right, you have to pass the test. You have to pass the bar. It, it's different about being a, a sommelier versus a master sommelier. But when you put so much effort into something, it, it becomes a, a little point of obsession. You really like, and the only people who really become master sommeliers are pretty obsessed. I think you could talk to 99.9% of all people who've ever passed telling you that there was definitely the first and foremost thing in your life that you're thinking about when you wake up and when you go to bed is passing that test. And when you've actually put that focus, there's no other way to pass it until you, you can't stop but having that as the first priority in your life or else you will never pass. I have friends of mine who have never passed and they wouldn't want to hear it. But the reason is, is they didn't put it at, at the priority of their life. They were out mm -hmm. hanging out with their friends at the bar till 2 AM when all of us were like in your right. flash till 3 AM, you know? So to answer your question, I love wine so much and I really don't like that getting into that exam focus moment all the time. It's I don't think it's healthy for your, your stress levels to be oh, going through that for too long. And, you know, it took me, I passed the exam on my third attempt, but the average number of attempts is like 3.5. So 50% of the people that take the test actually lose all of your parts on the third try. You guys know that if you don't, it's like shoots and ladders. If you take all three parts over three years and you don't pass on your third year, you start over and you have to start from scratch basically at your master's test. So some people, it takes them eight or nine attempts. Some people have passed Eesh. on their first attempt, but you're only allowed to take it once per year. So it's a, it's an intense undertaking and every year it's technically getting more difficult. There's more information. There's more areas in Eastern Europe and the subdistricts of Georgia in the Eastern Europe, right? Not Georgia, like Atlanta, Georgia, yeah. um, like the cradle where wine was first planted. Um, Armenia is now, you know, being talked about Croatia, um, Czech Republic, a lot of these areas, you need to know about what the areas are, the subdistricts, what's grown there, not necessarily be able to blind taste wines from Romania 
or Bulgaria, but they will ask you about the sub-districts where 15 years ago that wasn't talked about. It's just because there's more wines on the market. There's more wines to know about. If the wines are on a supermarket shelf in America, if you're a master sommelier, you should know what that wine is. So true. And even if you don't have to, once you have the title, I think one of the amazing things about what you do is that you constantly, you know, you have to keep it up. You must be constantly yeah, and that's, practicing, you know, that's, so to speak. That's the great thing. That's why we kind of started the Blind Six is because people wanted access to that experience. And we write the notes in detail about what you're looking for. We tell you exactly the site, the smell, the flavors, the acidity, oh, nice. complexity, and then you get tips on how to blind taste better. So even if you're a husband and wife that are living in some small town in the Midwest, you might not have access to uh, a, a master sommelier to learn from, or just to have fun on a Wednesday night, you open up wine one and pour it with, you know, your appetizer of, of whatever you're serving. And it's just a way to kind of enjoy your life and kind of stimulate your brain. Like, Oh, what is this? You put it into a decanter and you don't know what it is. And then you get to read the notes that I wrote out and you kind mm-hmm. of learned about that wine. So then three months from now, you have that same Gewürztraminer from Alsace, or you had Tarantes from Argentina, or you had a Sauvignon Blanc from a certain area in New Zealand, you'll learn more and be able to know next time you go out, hopefully soon this year to a restaurant and you open up the restaurant list and you're like, what, you know what? We had that wine that we had that dry Riesling. Now I love, I know I love dry Riesling when before I thought all Riesling was sweet. That's one of my favorite grapes in the world. So if somebody takes one thing from this podcast, Riesling is one of the great grapes of the world and order Trocken Riesling dry. That's Trocken means dry. So I have a question for you about that because I know Riesling is like famously very, very popular among Psalms. It's incredibly delicious. It should be popular among everyone. What are some other grapes that you think like Psalms love, but the general public maybe isn't so into yet? Mm, I would say for me, what's really taking on is Gruner Veltliner. So it's G-R-U-N-E-R, Veltliner, Mm -hmm. V-E-L-T-L-I-N-E-R. So Veltliner, Gruner Veltliner is the most widely planted white grape in Austria. And it's earthy, it's fresh, it's snappy most of the time. And it's very similar to a really good Pinot Grigio, but it has more acidity and it has more kind of complexity. It's almost like a little bit of cucumber peel, a little bit of like radish, green peach pit, green apple, these like kind of lime blossoms, all these incredible thought-provoking aromatics where you take a sip and you're just like, you want more of that. It's, you know, no disrespect to Pinot Grigio, but Pinot Grigio is often very neutral and it's got like stone fruit, a little bit of lemon, not really much else going on. Gruner Veltliner is a little bit more of an advanced character to that, but there are some incredible expressions of Pinot Grigio. So if you are listening to, uh, to me and I'm <laughs> not disrespecting Pinot Grigio, but the vast majority of Pinot Grigio on the store shelves is pretty neutral in flavor. Right. Um, and for me, Gruner Veltliner is a great way for people to the perfect salad wine, the perfect appetizer wine. For me, I'll typically go towards dry Riesling or Gruner if I'm having a dinner party or like a nice dry champagne, as well as Loire Valley whites. You know, I think Loire Valley is a great place. There's so many vineyards and people and places uh, in different grape varieties to be known, but Chenin Blanc, for example, from the Loire Valley um, can be incredible. Uh, Same with uh, Sancerre. Sancerre is a classic you know, dry Sauvignon Blanc. But for me, there's so many great things to explore in the world. There's a grape called Poship, which is coming out of the Dalmatian coast of Croatia. 
Um, wow. we, we did an offer on that a few times last year, but you know, I would invite, invite, if you're really looking to explore the world, you can go to Psalm Select, click sign up and for free, you put your email in and you'll begin getting daily offers about unique wines from around the world. It could be a white Burgundy, could be Chablis, which is unoaked Chardonnay coming from Northern Burgundy. Um, it could be a really incredible small production wine coming out of Santa Barbara, coming right off the coast from a new up and coming winemaker from an old vineyard that have was planted in the early seventies that, you know, maybe there's only 200 cases for the world and we got 20 of them. Like there's all these really great wines that I'm still learning about because the world is changing. It's one of the most exciting times to be into wine because uh, there's so many different people dedicating their life to making something really interesting. And there's so many tens and thousands of acres of different grape varieties planted in different climates um, with different winemaking techniques, whether that's aged in cement or neutral oak or stainless steel, so many variables that, that create the final pleasure or the final or, or not, not pleasurable. Not all wine is pleasurable for me. And yeah, that's right. where, you know, we taste hundreds of wines. Yeah, you, on, on most weeks we taste about a hundred wines and there's only about 15% of them that make it to the website. I was wow. going to ask like how much you're using a spit bucket versus enjoying a glass, but obviously if you're tasting a hundred wines, I yeah. spit bucketing. You're, you're, you're spitting a hundred percent. You know, if, if I'm doing a talk, you know, with people and I have really good burgundy in front of me, I'll, I'll have a few sips, but you know, for the most time, if I'm drinking, if, if I'm tasting a hundred wines, you have to spit a hundred percent. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Otherwise, keep, goodbye. Keep to yourself this. sharp. Right. <laughs> you can't learn anything. You lose, you'll lose your focus about, you know, there's just no way around it. You have to spit it. And if, and if, if I'm doing a panel or a zoom tasting with clients and we're drinking $200 bottles of Pulini Monarche, I'm having a few sips and we're, we're having fun. We're imbibing, you know, still, still keeping it, you know, pro, but you know, it's kind of hard to, to spit out the great wines of the world sometimes because they're I'm so sure. delicious and you don't get to taste them so often because they are rare. There's like 700 bottles made for the world. And you have one glass of the 700 bottles and they're, it's, it's sometimes it's a little bit tough to spit out. If you want to entertain yourself, you can go to the end of any wine tasting and see who hasn't spit. It's very clear. Oh my God. <laughs> yeah. That yeah, is it's too not, fun. It's, it's, it's yeah, it's not hard to, to, to spot those people. Wait, oh, I have a quick, really dumb question about Gruner, just because you were just talking about it. Why is it always in a, isn't it always in a slightly bigger bottle? Uh, it's not, well, you might be seeing it. Is in it a shape? Bottle. You can, there's, it's usually in a, in a kind of like a long, tall Skinny. Riesling S bottle. Yeah, like uh -huh. Alstaz Riesling, German Riesling, um, and Austrian Gruner and Riesling will be in these tall, um, yeah. sleek bottles. And then. But you'll always you'll also see them in these big um, round liter bottles. Yeah, maybe that's what. And if you see them, the one with the liter bottles, um, they're often kind of a little bit more stout, and and you know they usually have a crown cap on them. Yeah. They're wine yeah. made, like, super fresh. You want to be drinking like right now. The 2020s are coming out soon, where they're six months in bottle in liters, and uh, they're very light style, usually 11 to 12 percent alcohol, very fresh. Honestly, when you drink them, it feels like you're almost drinking watered down wine because they are light in body, but then right. there's more serious styles that are usually not bottled in liters. And um, 
the best wines are coming from three areas, Bacau, Kremstal, and Comtal. Um, and so these are just northwest of Vienna in an area called Niederösterreich, which means lower Austria. So you have higher Austria, which is basically where all the mountains are, sound of music kind of thing. And then you have lower Austria, which is uh, the area where all the great wines come from is typically just northwest of Vienna, but there's a lot of good areas in the south as well. Sudtirol um, and the areas around there closer to, to Italy, there's some great Sauvignon Blancs that come from there. I have what I consider to be an excellent question, but you may be like, this is the dumbest question ever. If you could only drink from either, you can choose one region or one grape or one particular wine for the rest of your life, what yeah. region, grape or wine would it be? Uh, for sure, it's Burgundy. So Burgundy is an area that existed under a shallow ocean for 180 million years. So imagine that the polar ice caps were smaller and the, the levels of the ocean was much higher. So a lot of these areas of France were covered by water and these decomposition of all these oyster shells, et cetera, created the limestone, um, which then went through different geological advancements uh, through the kind of tectonic plate shifting. And here you have some of the most complex soils in the world um, that were first planted by the Romans about 200 AD. Um, but Burgundy is planted to two major grapes and that's Chardonnay and Pinot Noir. And the Chardonnay and Pinot Noir that are coming from the best sites will set you back the cost of a, a new truck, you know, literally 20 Unreal. or 25,000 a bottle for the best stuff. And when you taste these wines, like I don't get to taste those bottles very often, but it's literally like time stops and nothing else matters. Like the aromatics that you'll get off of, uh, you know, Domaine Loire, Domaine Dauvinet, Chevalier Monarchet, for example, I think those wines are going for 20,000 a bottle. It's a white wine coming from a small plot. And those wines, you'll take a sip and literally your arm kind of gets goosebumps and you want to like call your mom and say, thank you. Uh, for for birthing wow. you kind of like yeah like like really emotional experiences with wine and that wow. only happens you know in one out of every thousand bottles i have and those are honestly always are surrounding great burgundy there's an area in the northern rhone valley called cote roti um and there's a hill very close by uh, called hermitage that grows syrah and that's a close second but um if i'm marrying one region it's definitely burgundy and do you think that you can still find really good value burgundies? Like if I wanted to go to a shop, I could still find a great burgundy. You can, uh, you can find really great burgundies. The typical values are found come from the Cote Maconnais and the Cote Chalonnais, which are further south. The very heart of burgundy is called the Cote d'Or. That's the slope, the golden slope. And then mm -hmm. just south of there, you have the Cote Chalonnais and the Cote Maconnais, which have better values. But um, Macon is a good thing to remember, M-A-C-O-N. So the wines from Macon, Puy Fuisse, for example, Saint-Veron, mm -hmm. so those, really, those are really good values. Um, and now that the tariffs are back off, those are now $30 to $40 a bottle for the very good ones from the Maconnais. So uh, if you have a great wine shop, you go in there and ask them for good value Burgundy, you're going to definitely end up there. Or you can end up in the, the Cote d'Or, but you're drinking wines called Bourgogne. So a Bourgogne Blanc or Bourgogne Rouge typically comes from vineyards further down on the slope, closer to the flatlands, and you can get some really good values there. Um, but Burgundy is a very complex um, place with so many things to learn. But um, we we talk a lot about Burgundy in our daily offers, and we do about one, three or four great Burgundy offers under forty dollars a month. So wow, um, that's amazing! A great, that's a great place to start. 
often the really good ones are around $35 to $40 uh, for really good Burgundy, but you don't have to pay the $100 to $150. But once you start getting into Burgundy and tasting the $35 to $40 a bottle, when you buy the $100 bottles, you start to understand Uh you're turning up the volume. You know, the quality of the speakers get better. Like, you know what I mean? All of that stuff, like driving a Toyota to driving a Bentley. You know, it's like it's a little bit different for a reason. And it's hard to go back, honestly. It's hard to go back from uh, to to the to the The normal things. Yeah. You can still get disappointments. I mean, I remember opening up a $25,000 bottle of Henri Jaillet Crow Parent to 1985. So it's around a 20, it was a $25,000 Magnum that was 10 years ago. So today it's probably $40,000 Magnum and it was corked. And it was corked and we were sitting there. The anticipation of like, as you're opening it, I can't, oh my God. Exactly. So, you know, there are disappointments and, you know, even if a wine's not corked, you have so much expectation because it's Mm -hmm. from this vineyard, from this place, from this producer, from that year. And it always doesn't add up. Like sometimes you'll pull it out and it's a little disappointing because you have so much expectation like meeting your favorite actress and they didn't really want to say hi to you or something. You're like, yeah, that's a little, that was a little, <laughs> that was a little much of a bummer. I really didn't expect it to be like right. that. They're not nice. Yeah, <laughs> totally. Cause you're meeting your two favorite actresses right, right. now. Yes, <laughs> I am. I am. I was just going to ask if we can talk about pairings for a second. That's what I was going to say. Oh my God. Well, cause I feel like I, of course I, I, if I'm at a restaurant, I love to, have a recommendation for what will pair well with what I'm eating, blah, blah, blah. But I often feel like I just want to drink something that's going to be delicious. And I almost, okay, this is a really ridiculous question. Like, how are you supposed to taste your wine and your food? Like, is the point you have a bite of food, then you take a sip of wine. (laughs) Are you supposed to start pouring your wine into your mouth as you're chewing? Like, what's the deal? Yeah, you want to pour the wine over your food. I'm just kidding. (laughs) Um. It shouldn't resemble a soup. (laughs) Yeah. So I think the, the way forward is there's really no rules. Um, you're basically when I'll just go through the first, the first step. So when somebody comes to the, your table and brings you the glass of, say you ordered a Bourgogne Blanc, right? 2017, they bring it to the table, present it. You'll confirm that it's actually the wine that you ordered. They will open, pull the cork and they will pour you a taste. You will typically put your nose in the glass, make sure it smells correct. Like wine. If it smells like old newspaper that's been sitting on the side of your house for three years, that's a sign that it's corked. Okay. So then you'll basically take a small sip and you'll, you'll swallow the sip and it should bring you pleasure. If there's something horrible about the wine, something you don't like, you can express distaste about that. Now, this is, this is, wasn't what I was expecting. And you can communicate that with the, with the sommelier, the sommelier, if they're well-trained should want to make you happy. Okay. So that's first and foremost, their goal and if you say, oh my God, I hate that, that's that's an issue, right? You don't want to be sitting there for the next hour and a half hating this wine. So you can express that. Vast majority of the time, you're going to enjoy it because the wine list has been well curated. So if the wine is either faulty or you just don't like it, you can communicate that and the sommelier can address that situation. And most of the time, the wines aren't going to be horrifically expensive. So if you bought a $60 wine that usually costs the restaurant $20 or something, they can sell it by the glass, recommend it to another table. With that being said, then you say you order chicken, right? And you have a white burgundy, you have some roast chicken. You're usually taking a small bite of the food. And then at the point where you're swallowing your food, you'll follow up with a sip of wine. If you still have a mouthful of food and you take a sip of wine, that's okay as well. 
So for me, I'm typically chewing my food, swallowing the bite of food and following up with a sip of wine. And for me, it should be like, it's kind of like an orchestra in a way. You have all the flavors of the food. They're sitting on your palate. All the flavors that you're tasting are going to the back of your nose called your olfactory bulb. So all of the flavors of the onions and whatever things are going on uh, with that chicken dish, and then you taste a sip of the wine, that is going to intermingle with those molecules creating that food and wine pairing. And so hopefully, you know, the rule of good food and wine pairing is they should kind of marry and become better together. Um, if you're drinking, having a sip of asparagus or artichoke with red wine, it's a catastrophe because I mean, there's chemicals in the artichoke and the asparagus that totally eat the fruit basically. And they make the red wine taste totally hollowed out. So there's certain food and wine pairings that will crush yeah. each other. And there's certain that are, that are similarity pairings. For example, you can have a, you know, duck with cherries and have like a really nice Pinot Noir from Sonoma coast. And you have these, a lot of these rich cherry flavors that go with the rich cherry and the duck fat and that really beautiful duck breast flavor, they go together. And then you'll have contrast pairings, which might be like a really great blue cheese with a sweet sauterne. Those are mm. completely contrasting flavors. But when you have them together, it's like the clouds part and the staircase to heaven comes out. And you have these incredible food and wine pairings because they've been developed and understood over the last centuries. They've been doing it for literally three or 400 years. Um, and understanding in old French culture that these things work. And so we've inherited a lot of these great food and wine pairings. And there's really no rules to food and wine pairing. If you enjoy it and it brings you pleasure, do it. So we always tell people, I can make recommendations, but you have to follow your own taste. And if you like a particular pairing, that's great. Okay. I'm going to be selfish for a second. We're making some veal tortellini today. Uh, what, what should we drink with it? What's the sauce? We're good. I think we're going to do it in a broth. Okay. So it's a very neutral broth and there's no tomato. Mm -mm. Okay. So you can do a really nice white with that. Um, if you wanted to, if you were into integrating, you know, tomatoes, I would say go to Italian red, like Sangiovese or Nebbiolo. But since it's just a broth on its own, you can do a neutral white wine. I would recommend doing honestly a nice coastal white Italian even like Vermentino, or you could drink Friolano from um, from the northeast of Italy, from Friuli Venezia Giulia, um, the grape called Friolano, which has texture. It's not oaked, um, but it still has a nice freshness to it. You could do white Burgundy. White Burgundy would be great with that as well. Something light with nice texture. But I would stay away from intense like Sauvignon Blanc or any sort of like Gewürztraminer or any aromatic varieties. You want something that's a little bit more kind of a little bit more creamy, not super intense and allow the, the veal and the pasta and the broth to kind of show through. Um, and so too much Oak, I think would crush that dish. Thanks Ian. Wow. But yes. I will say that dish, if you do pair it with a light Pinot Noir from Burgundy, for example, or a uh -huh. light Giovese from Tuscany, you will, you won't, you, you won't be disappointed. You can no. do a really light bodied, uh, uh, you know, red wine because veal is very delicate. Right. right. And so it's not super intense, like, like beef with a big intense red wine. If you were doing oxtail versus veal, it would be a completely different recommendation. And also uh -huh. the sauce, it sounds like a very clean preparation and it's, and it's making me hungry. Yes. Before we let you go, can I also ask one selfish question? 
Yeah. My dad and I both have a thing where when we've eaten, you know, a hakure turnip, like those beautiful small baby turnips, eaten it raw and then taken a sip. Doesn't matter if it's a Negroni or a bottle of wine, the drink tastes exactly the same. Have you heard of this? You know what? It's interesting. A lot of root vegetables can be very intense for wine. And anytime you're really eating root vegetables, a very good pairing is Gruner. Mm. So try that with Gruner next time. And just to throw it out there, there's different styles of Gruner. Most of the good ones to go for are the moderate alcohol, 12 to 13%. And the higher the alcohol gets, the more intense the fruit and the richness of like almost perceived sweetness gets. So you know, always looking for the alcohol level. If you're getting a Gruner Veltliner for a salad, look for something that's 12 to 12 and a half percent. The higher they get, mm. more rich and fruit forward they become. And there's a style called Reserve or Schmaragd from the Vakao that uh, we're getting more geeky. But um, those are more intense that might be paired with lobster or something like that. But if you're looking for a pairing with turnip or radish or cucumber or any sort of like fresh arugula, um, going for a fresh, snappy Gruner. Um, most of them are around twenty to twenty-five dollars a bottle. You can get cheap ones around twelve to fourteen, but you really start to get better quality as you get above twenty dollars. Ian, this was such an honor for us. We're so so pleased Thanks. to talk with you, and also to uh, to me, and to know that you are nice, like we were saying before. To meet one of oh. uh, you are a celebrity to us, and Thanks. yes, exactly, yeah. <laughs> you are to us um, meeting our favorite actor. Exactly. Right well, you know, said I'm, hi to us, so thank I, you. I, I do my best. I know watching the movie, you might have been, uh, you know, not sure if I'm nice all the time, but, you know. Oh, <laughs> we are in, 100% in. We do ask one question of all of our guests, a silly question to top things off, to end things. But I feel like we should amend it for you because you're so special. The question is, if you were stuck on a desert island and you could only have one type of potato chip, what would it be? But I almost want to ask you, like, what is your favorite chip to pair with wine? You know, that's a tough one. Um, You know what? I just, there's this new brand out of Spain and it's Jamón Iberico flavor. Yep. I've had it. And I think it's Torres. I can't remember. Yes, it's Torres. They make truffle too. Yeah. I mean, they make truffle and they make that. And it's actually real truffle and real Jamón Iberico fat that they actually, it tastes like you are in Spain tasting jamón iberico. So Torres, jamón iberico, final answer. And oh then my I, and then my desert island ship, it's probably sea salt and vinegar. Any I brand, just, you don't care. You know, the kettle chips, sea salt and vinegar. I have a three and a half year old daughter. She loves them, surprisingly. Oh. She's, yeah, she's totally, she has the palate of a grown person, honestly. Sounds like you have another master of some on your hands is what it sounds like. He, you know, in my heart, he is a grandmaster. <laughs> we should bestow yes, that. We should selecting. send him a certificate. <laughs> we, should. we should. Yeah, we should. Oh, my God. But yes, we will seriously. be bestowing this title upon very, very few select sommeliers who deign to come on our podcast. <laughs> exactly. Um, guys, if you haven't already signed up for Psalm Select, but while you were listening to this episode, it's it's incredible. Please do. Every email that you get, two emails a day, and it's just like you learn about these wines you've never heard of before, and the deals are great, and the the literature on the website is great, and, and in, in your inbox, it's... 
I also want to say like, even if you're a person who is like, okay, well, I don't want to spend $30 on a bottle of wine, which is completely understandable, but you're interested in learning more about wine. That's why I really like these emails is because I think you just learn a lot about terroir, different vineyards, different grapes mm-hmm. and stuff. So if you want to increase your wine knowledge, this yeah. And they do include wines that are under $30 frequently and in their shop. There yeah, yeah, yeah. Too. You can also just shop there. But I just, just another great episode. Okay. I just want to give a quick PSA. Have you seen Drive to Survive no. Formula One? No. I, it's the only thing I ever want to watch again. I, uh, no. <laughs> I can't even describe to you how enthralled I am by this show. I think it's so excellent. I highly recommend it to anyone. I hate sports. I'm not interested in race car drivers. Well, turns out I am. Now you are. I'm not like a race car buff or anything. It's like the best show I've ever seen. It actually is very similar to song because it's Mm -hmm. kind of about the behind the scenes drama and like how difficult it is to prepare for this stuff and all of the, you know, all of the people and the teams and the thought that goes into it. So, um, I'm just putting that out there and recommending it. Okay, guys. Well, (laughs) drink some wine, watch that Formula One show, and we will see you next week for another special guest. We've got Renee Erickson on the show. Uh, Uh, Amazing chef restaurant from Seattle. Amazing. Yes. Okay. All right. All right. Ciao.